Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. The mind is governed by the, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who is raised from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. The word of the Lord. The reading from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. The vision of the dry bones. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he led me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me in the center of the plain, which was now filled with bones. He made me walk among them in every direction, so that I saw how many they were on the surface of the plain, how dry they were. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones come to life? Lord God, I answered, you alone know that. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, See, I will bring spirit into you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews upon you, make flesh grow over you, cover you with skin, and put spirit in you so that, so that you may come to life and know that I am your Lord. I prophesied as I had been told, and even as I was prophesying, I heard a noise. It was a rattling as the bones came together, bone joining bone. I saw the sinews and the flesh come upon them, and the skin covered them, but there was no spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the spirit, prophesy, son of man, and say to the spirit, thus says the Lord, from the four winds come, O Spirit, and breathe into these slain, that they may come to life. I prophesied as he told me, and the Spirit came to them. They came alive and stood upright, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, 
These bones are the whole house of Israel. They have been saying, our bones are dry up, our hope is lost, and we are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, O my people, I will open your graves and have you rise from them and bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and have you rise from them, O my people, I will put my spirit in you, that you may live, and I will settle you upon your land. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord. I have promised, I will do it, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. We uh, claim Lent as a season of reflection as a time for quiet reflection and contemplation. Hmm. On Ash Wednesday, we uh, use the... Uh, you know what? Other people stand in front of the screen all the time, Dan. Uh, right. Just brought back a really bad memory from my first pastorate where... Uh, I decided I'd be uh, creative in this elderly congregation and would uh, use a lavalier mic and preach in front of uh, in a two-pulpit front with a raised stage. I would preach out in the middle and would, would be homey and, and, and communicate warmth and empathy <clears throat> and tested the lavalier mic. Everything works fine. It's coming through the sound system. And we had some elderly folks who were... were, were well, shall we say hearing impaired, <clears throat> and First Mennonite Church of Upland, being a church with cutting-edge technology, had uh, wired a series of hand wands into the front row, so you could pull out a hand wand and put it to your ear and listen. <clears throat> now, the mic at the pulpit was dead, it was just my lavalier mic, and I'm, I begin my sermon, and I, I've got it nailed. I've got my introduction down cold. Life is good. I am preaching away. And I look, and there sits Sister Schmidt with her hearing wand, and it's not up to her ear. She's pointing it at me, and she's going, get back behind the pulpit because she can't hear me. Now, the mic at the pulpit is dead. And I don't want to be, you know, forced into anything. I'm a new pastor. I need to assert my authority. So I continue to preach for a moment, complete my introduction, and then slowly glide graciously and effortlessly back to, uh, to the pulpit. And I begin to preach from there. She puts the wand up to her ear. Now she can hear me from the microphone that's dead. <clears throat> Lent is a season of reflection. And contemplation, we begin it on Ash Wednesday with the reminder from 
the Old Testament that we need to remember that we are dust and to dust we return. And so we come up with lists of things that we want to give up for Lent. Lent takes stock of us. We remember our mortality. We renounce things in our lives that are beginning to have a godlike power in us. And we quiet our lives and slow our pace. In theory. How's that working for you? last five weeks. We, uh, we also take stock of Lent. How have we created space and time to reflect? To reflect on our mortality and to reflect on our priorities. Lent comes in the busiest season of our lives. Taxes are due. Second semester of school is full and busy. It's springtime for crying out loud. And yet, the call of the good news is that there are times in our lives where we need to stop and slow down and take stock. And I come here this morning as one who does not do a very good job of that. Slowing down and taking stock, quiet reflection and contemplation are not my default settings. I have to work at it. That's why they call it a spiritual discipline. It doesn't come naturally for me to quiet my heart. It's much more natural for me to tell everybody else what to do. I found a great notepad of paper somewhere that the caption at the top says, teamwork is getting a lot of people to do what I want them to. I can resonate with that. What I don't always resonate with is be still and know that I am God. And yet the the opportunity is there for us. Lent is this season. But what we often do, well, at least what I often do, is I turn it into the woe is me season. The, oh, I need to give up something. Oh, I've been a bad person. Oh, I've done all kinds of naughty bits of things that makes God unhappy. And that's not the point of Lent. The two readings this morning from Romans chapter 8 and from Ezekiel 37 give us an insight into the fact that Lent is nothing short of a power struggle between the forces of good and evil in the world. These 40 days of Lent are not just times for us to become passively quiet, but to become actively engaged, re-engaged with the God who gives us life. Lent is a season of renewal rather than days of despair. Paul never knew what we called Lent. But if he had, he would have designed chapter 8 for that season. He begins chapter 8, this great triumphal victory chapter, 
that ends with the crescendo. What can separate us from the love of God? Height or depth, powers or principalities? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But he doesn't start there. He starts here. In verses 5-11. through 11, Where he says there are two spheres of power at work in the world. There's sin and there's the Spirit. Flesh and life. And the consequences of those two spheres are death and life. And those two spheres of power and relationship are in relationship to the Gospel and to the Torah, to the instruction, to the law, as Paul calls it. And he says that that those relationships are either hostility to God or pleasing God. Now Paul might have been a good computer programmer because he thought in binary terms. Life versus death. Pleasing God, hostility to God. It's, It's zero or one. We tend to like our conversations about the life of faith to have more gray than Paul seems to have. But Paul's acknowledging something profound here. It's not the binariness of life. It's not, it's not the struggle of sin versus spirit, of evil versus good that he's focused on here. It's the state of the Roman Christian's life. It's the triumph of Christ that matters to Paul. And verse 11 carries this powerful note that it is the resurrection that trumps everything. The seminal turning point of history is not Julius Caesar's coming to power. It's not even the the people of Israel receiving the law. The seminal turning point of history for Paul was the resurrection. And 2,000 years later, most of us think in terms of resurrection. Hmm. Is that like, I don't know, an episode of The Walking Dead? You know, do we, do we turn into brain-chewing zombies or something? We don't get what Paul's really driving at in Romans. That the resurrection is Jesus' nonviolent victory over all the other powers that seek to bind us. During the season of Lent, when we take stock of our lives, we become keenly aware, hopefully, of those forces that bind us, those forces that tie us up in knots, the, the things that irk us and irritate us and and leave us aware of how incomplete we are. And it's that thing, Paul says, that the resurrection overcomes. Whatever it is that ties your soul up in knots, the resurrection overcomes it. That's Paul's point. 
Paul's point is the resurrection is the ultimate trump card. It takes care of everything. Now, it doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make it vanish. We don't become perfect. Would that we did, but we don't. Instead, Paul uses a Trinitarian formula in verses 9 through 11. And he uses in the Greek a grammatical technique called a conditional clause. And it gets translated loosely in verses 9 through 11. Uh, Verse 9, but if you are not in the flesh, and you're not, that's the parenthetical meaning in the Greek, but if Christ is in you, and he is, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells with you, verse 11, and he does, there is behind Paul's Conditional clause is if-then statement. Not, not a mathematical formula, but an absolute certainty. The resurrection changes everything. Whatever it is that leaves us bound up in our guts, Paul says that we have been given new life same power that Christ that raised Christ from the dead is inside us the same power that broke the back of evil and canceled its ability to take our lives dwells in us the same power that took a rebellious carpenter's son from Nazareth who was executed as a criminal but raised him from the dead. That same power is in us. That's what Paul's driving at here. Now, our problem is in the Western church in the 21st century we turn that into some self-help talk. We turn that into, well, I don't get along with my coworker at work, but I have the power of the resurrection in my life. Well, then Paul would say, do something about that. Live as if Christ was risen. That's his point. Because, oh, yeah, he is. The resurrection matters. Not because it's a cool story and a great ending, but because it changes our lives. It reanimates us. It takes us from the realm of death and destruction and despair. And it turns our moral compass around and offers us New life. That's what the resurrection's about, Paul says. But Paul's reflection on the power of the resurrection has an Old Testament antecedent. Ezekiel 37. Valley of the dry bones. This weird 
weird story that Ezekiel tells us. If this were a, an episode of a television program, if this were a pilot for a television program, they would throw the screenwriters out of Hollywood. This is just a weird little story. Here's a valley of dry bones. Here is Israel, who has been defeated and butchered and exiled and left to bake in the sun, to rot, until the flesh falls away and all that's left are dry, arid bones in the desert. That's how Israel understood itself. They had been destroyed. They were in exile. Ezekiel is the priest to the exilic community. And everything he's talking to them about is about how to face being in exile and what God's promises are to a people in exile. You and I know a thing about being an exile people because we are Christians in a time of post-Christendom. We are Christians in a time when it is harder and harder for our story to make sense and our institutions have less and less opportunity to tell the stories. We live in a time and in a place where our culture basically looks at us and says, how quaint. How quaint. And where if you say Christian, it gets equated with things that have very little to do with Jesus. And so we know a thing or two about being in exile. We know what it's like to be dry bones in a desert. To have our life and our aspirations stripped away from us and to be left with nothing except to rot in the wilderness. And Ezekiel sees this, this field of bones and <laughs> And the Spirit of the Lord says, So, mortal man, can these bones live? Ezekiel's going, What's the trick question all about here? You know, and he gives the Old Testament equivalent of the Sunday school answer. You know, the right answer in Sunday school is always Jesus. The right answer in the Old Testament is, Oh, Lord God, you know. Whatever you say, God, I, I don't know. And then the Spirit says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. The Lord God says to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. You will live. And so the bones we continue to read begin to come together. There's, you know, somebody could probably win a Grammy for a special effect here. Bones coming together and clattering. and the Sinews of flesh beginning to wrap around these bones and hold them together. Musculature and finally skin. Imagine the sight. A valley full of dry bones coming to life. But there was no breath in them. And so, again, 
The voice of God says to Ezekiel, prophesy that the breath of God will come into them. And the story ends in verse 14. I will put My Spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you on your own soil and then you shall know that I the Lord have spoken and will act, says the Lord. God's promise. God's promise is to restore our lives. God's promise is nothing short of new life. Not life as some brain-chewing zombie, but life reanimated by His Spirit, through His Spirit, in His Spirit. Death no longer is the last word. Its power, while real, is transitory. Ezekiel 37 is the promise of the victory of life. That life always wins out. And so, Lent is a season for preparing for the resurrection, for welcoming the boundless Christ into our lives. I was, I was struck by this icon from the 17th century and how in one painting it, it tries to depict all that happens around Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, His descent into hell, and His resurrection from the dead. All of it gets pictured for us in this icon. And I can imagine monks in a Russian Orthodox monastery reflecting on that icon every Lenten season, years in and years out, wondering how does Christ do this? How does He change my life? It is the story of our lives. We worship a boundless Christ. Lent isn't feeling sorry for doing naughty things. It's preparing to follow and to worship our resurrected Lord. And so we recognize in Lent that we live in this struggle, this crossfire, this tug of war between the powers and principalities whose whose highest aspiration for us is to make us zombies. Emotionally brain-dead people who don't think about the implications of what they do, who don't wrestle with what does it mean to follow a risen Lord, but who simply wake up every morning and do what's in front of them, and at the end of the day, go to bed as if nothing matters. That's what the principalities and powers want from us for us to be zombies. And then the Holy Spirit of God on the other side who would restore us to God's design, to the promise of Jesus. I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly, might have it to the fullest. That's our storyline during Lent and the rest of the year. We live in the midst of this tug of war 
And we live knowing the spoiler alert that God won through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That the resurrection means if we live as zombies, it's by our choice. It's not to say that following Jesus is easy or simple or uncomplicated. It is not. But it does mean that if we live as zombies, having heard the good news, shame on us. Because we can have so much more. And so the implications are that the dry bones of our zombie state are reanimated and brought to life by God's breath. That God's design, His very wish for us, is that we might have life. We've painted ourselves a picture in the Western church that God is an aloof umpire looking down from heaven on our behaviors and going, bad, 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 reasonably good, bad, okay, bad, bad, really bad. And we think that's what God does. And then at the end of life, he sort of totes up the scoreboard and we either get in or not based on how well we did. Nothing could be further from the truth. The God of the Bible is a God who loves us completely. Who is willing to take that which He loved more than anything else and give it up for us. God wants us to have life. And so what's our takeaway this morning? Well, one takeaway is maybe should we maybe we should live as if we are alive in Christ. Maybe we should live as if the resurrection matters. Maybe we should live as if God isn't controlling some great big jumbotron out there replaying every bad thing we do and instead is the God who walks alongside of us and puts his arm around us and says, yeah, hang in there. Yeah, I know it hurts right now, but I'm with you. Yeah, I know you don't have all the answers yet, but I do. Follow me. That's the God who calls us in this season of Lent to quiet our hearts and to listen to him. So this morning, some questions. In the war of the worlds that goes on for the dominion of our souls, do we really believe and live as if Christ has been victorious? How does Christ's victory shape us? If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? Christ's words to us are very similar. I have come that you may have life and might have it to the fullness. What are you going to do with it? The Ezekiel story is a two-step reanimation. 
God breathes life, and then the bones are tied together by tendons and muscle and flesh. And so the questions this morning, how is God breathing into your life, into my life? And how well are we tied together as one body? Because here's the secret. There is no life apart from the body. If you're sitting here this morning and you think, oh, this, you know, me and Jesus, we got a pretty good gig going on just ourselves and don't really need anybody else. Well, you've missed the point. The point of Ezekiel 37 is we're not fully alive until we're tied together. Until the bones of our lives are inextricably linked to each other to other bones, to different bones, to bones that have other perspectives and points of view, that have different capacity and ability. Imagine a body made up just of thigh bones or a body made up just of ribs. doesn't work that way. We are one body, many bones tied together, tied together by the Spirit who gives us tendons and flesh and skin and the Spirit of God who breathes life into us. One more thing. The boss said it best in our pre-service video this morning. We are alive. And though we lie alone here in the dark, our souls will rise to carry the fire and light the spark, to fight shoulder to shoulder and heart to heart. Brothers and sisters, we die alone. We come to the end of our lives by ourselves. But we live together. On either side of that event we call death, we live together. We live in Christ together. I'm, I'm an intellectual preacher too smart by half to, to really do this well. But this morning I want to invite you. Do you want to live as if the resurrection mattered? Really, do you want to live as if Christ's resurrection makes a hill of beans a difference in the way you live? I mean, the world, our culture is full of happy moral pagans who get along every day, sun up to sundown, without worrying about any of the stuff that the scriptures call us to. And they seem to get by just fine. They get to work on time and they make good wages. At the end of the day, they go home to their family and they love their children. And so what difference does it make? Only this. It's the difference between being a zombie and being alive. We can sleepwalk through life or we can live life to the fullest. 